When my son passed away May 27, 2020, at 5.55 a.m., I was by myself. My world went split. And I was forced to be a caregiver to some people grieving, a grieving person, and then understand what to do next with my son, who I was torn to see in a body bag go to a morgue. Hi, I'm Lance, and this is Unsilent, a speak series by No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that all too often prevent people from getting the help they need. We're so glad you're here. In today's conversation, we get to know Rafia. Now, Rafia is the mother of Jamal, who at 19 years old, tragically lost his life to suicide in May of 2020. Since then, Rafia has gone on to be an outspoken and passionate advocate for breaking mental health stigmas, especially in the BIPOC community. She chooses every day to honor the life and spirit of her son, Jamal, by putting her advocacy in action with her own charity, Soul Survivors of Chicago, which donates the shoes of those who have died by suicide or other mental health challenges, or those that are donated in honor of someone who's passed to individuals who are coming out of incarceration. We know these conversations are never easy to have, but we thank Rafia again so much for being so open and honest with us. In today's second part of our three-part conversation with Rafia, she opens up about what she feels are the mental health stigmas within the BIPOC community, the need for post-intervention, barriers to seeking treatment, and the impact of the collective trauma and loss within the Black community. And be sure to check out part one of our conversation with Rafia linked in the show notes. Now, let's dive in. Today's episode contains in-depth conversations around suicide, suicidal ideation, and suicide loss. It's okay if you need to skip this one. Do what's right for you. The first barrier is the fact that mental health and access to it is not as accessible as uh, the local liquor store or the local currency exchange. Um, we have a serious drought in our community of those resources. And when they did exist, they were not funded well to allow us to continue to exist. So it causes us to go out of our communities into other, you know, places that we're not familiar with if we're eligible to even be in that part of the segment. And the whole reality of being so vulnerable to something that we're told to really and truly absorb and know that you can get through it on your own or, you know, um, pray about it or even just knowing that, you know, we're here for you and it's going to be all right. Like a quick fix thing has caused us to be real stagnated. And um, I just truly believe that, you know, it gets to a point where the kettle gets too hot. You know, and it is to the point where we see the behaviors acting out from the feelings. The feelings are now the behaviors. I'm, I'm now going to, you know, rob a store. I'm going to, you know, not finish school. I'm not going to be able to have a healthy relationship with someone because it's just too much to handle. Absolutely. I'm actually walking the walk now. I'm, I'm doing the services that I didn't have when it was time for me to receive them in post-intervention. I started a, a support group for the BIPOC community and those who've been impacted by loss. And I opened it up for persons, not just suicide, but for those with trauma, of gun violence, because when it was time for me to find it, I was on Google putting in any word that came to my head that was an adjective to help me. And it was just total silence and, you know, not accessible things. So 
it was really challenging. So therefore, it, it becomes where, you know, if you have the strength and resolve to say, I know I need this, I got to gotta find it and it's not there, maybe I can start it and just just take a leap of faith, you know, who's to say it will be and what not. But I, I just truly know that that was my journey and continues to be. And, and for those who say, you know, we don't have it, it makes me feel like <clears throat> we have to really start thinking about, is it because we don't seek it or because we are, you know, scared to start it or are we waiting for someone else where we can do it? You know, it's, it's a leap of faith by all means. Uh, the anchor to help me in my process of my grief a lot differently than I am at this point. Um, I do have the support. I do have the networks, but I do have those days where if I could rewind the picture back and had that intervention, it would have made a little bit more easier uh, path for me versus what it is like for me now. I'll give you an example. When my son passed away May 27, 2020 at 5.55 a.m., I was by myself. My world went split. And I was forced to be a caregiver to some people grieving, a grieving person, and then understand what to do next with my son, who I was torn to see in a body bag, go to a morgue. Okay. So with that, you have to get that together and wrap your head. And then also the planning, the understanding of what supports, what, what happened, the questions, the things that you say to people, say to people, say to you, there was nobody to intervene with me to say, okay, this is a new life, Rafia, and this is what you can do. This is how you handle. This is what you can look forward to, that kind of thing. And to have a internet was a, a blessing and also felt so humbling because to be honest with you, Nobody wants to ever in their grieving go through an internet and just search for, for help. It's, it's, if you've ever had to do that, it's only because your sink was broke or something like that. It wasn't because I'm out, I'm out to go crazy because my son just hung himself. I need to find somebody to talk to. Who is there? Where are you? You know, and luckily I had the, the strength to do that being a social worker and knowing that there was something out there or thinking or praying for it. But I also think about people who don't have the ability to do that. I don't know what route. And that's what happens in post-intervention. You get those supports right then and there so that it can carry you as you go through. You can take them or leave them, but you know that they exist. And you don't have to be somebody out there fishing for something that you have to already, you know, that you should already have fish for, if that makes sense, you know. Um, so yeah, I just I just am encouraged. There's a lot of post-intervention programs throughout the United States. The Loss Program, which is um, an organization that I am um, newly learning about, uh, definitely advocates for the post-intervention model because post-intervention is pre-intervention. It's definitely a pre-intervention. There's not one black woman that hasn't had that feeling of I got to pull it together in a sense of a crisis because we have so many that we we encounter every single day that it just becomes automatic whether you lose your job or your child is suspended from school or you end up with a car issue you've got to fix you've got to pull it together get the 
big girl panties on and make it work. And in these situations, we become, and I became um, really traumatized and still trying to work through the, the, the fact that I had to go to a funeral home and I had to get a, what a gravestone, what is that? Where you go, uh, you know, people coming by and how to, how, to, how to talk to people about something that, you know, has certain language that I'm learning that you say and don't say. You know, it was like a, a, a fast college course on grief and loss in a matter of minutes. And so therefore we all come with that first, you know, how to do that. That is just inbuilt in, in, in us, you know, how we move. When you meet someone from your hometown, when you're in a new city, it's almost like um, when you go out of the country and you meet someone who speaks English and you've been in a place you've never been before and could talk. It's those feelings of a commonality and some kind of connection to some extent of what you are experiencing without going through a definition of it or you being asked to defend it. And it alleviates that ability uh, for a person to feel um, like they are stigmatized going into something. So for therapy and for us in the Black community, we have to tell a story and a narrative that we might have to shift with a therapist who's seen the news and never met a Black person in real life or never had a conversation or even a relationship. Or a therapist who probably did know a Black family but did not know this kind of Black family or this kind of Black individual's experience. So it is like, like a fruit tree meeting another fruit tree and being able to grow together, if that makes sense. Authenticity is the key. And for me, I can only present as I am and with some understanding that um, I can read really good, um, you know, overt behaviors or I feel like I'm a really emotionally intelligent person. So oftentimes when I'm in conversation or with other persons of different cultures, and I feel that my message isn't being heard, I, I try to circle around that because I really, I really do think the importance is that, you know, you keep an eye, not only the therapist on you, but you with the therapist, because it's, it's something they're gaining. And um, they come with their own biases and their own understandings and so forth. So I'm I'm a hundred percent with authenticity, with being very real. Um, I, I often sometimes use um, jargons that I have to sometimes clarify, and then at the same time I also want it to be clear about you know where I stand on certain issues and stuff because it could be a perception of other things based on my background and where I came from, my experiences and things like that. So, you know, it's not just the norm kind of thing, you know, it's not just because I'm a black woman, <clears throat> I'm a single black woman, or I am someone who never went to college or didn't finish college, stuff like that. And it comes up in such small ways. I'll give you an example. I had a conversation with someone and I had a ponytail in my hair. I had a ponytail and um, long story short, uh, the person made a comment about that ponytail being as silky and straight as her hair. And um, I did not initially get it until after a conversation with another black woman who was on the call and asked me what my feelings were. 
And so those 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 little sentiments of, of racism, you know, comes in and you you can't you don't even catch them. And so there are times and I brought that up to say, you know, there are times when you can miss the mark and you might have to circle back on that. And I think as a culture, we're really getting a little bit more stronger in doing that, although it's very scary, too, because of authoritative feelings. But, yeah, you know, trauma and loss is so common within the black community. I don't even think we have a grips of it. Um, I have not met in my lifetime, and I haven't met every Black person, but I'm pretty sure the population I've met is a great example of it, that they have not experienced some vicarious trauma or trauma within their family or in their own life, mainly because of the socioeconomic issues that we deal with, the biases and barriers we have to go through, and definitely... um, the outcomes of uh, what that struggle looks like. And because it's so big and it's so vast, a lot of us have not even got a chance to sit down and think about that. I hear stories all the time that make me feel like, wow, and you're still going to work? Or, oh my goodness, how do you even breathe? You know, because it's, it's, just, it's just a movie script waiting to happen. So essentially, um, What happens with that, like I said before, you see a lot of those behaviors come out because of that feeling. And that feeling just resonates so much that it can carry down to different messages in that person's spirit and body and and way they move around. And um, it's a hurtful thing. It's a very hurtful thing to the point where we're so traumatized. We're traumatized by our own culture. There are many Black people who can't go in certain communities that are Black because they've been traumatized by the expectations of what that community is about or what will happen in that community. So you're you're fearful of your own people. And imagine that. So it it just kind of just snowballs. For sure, um, I definitely would empathize with that cycle. And I understand it feels like you're just in this circle that never has an opening. I definitely believe that it's been normalized and we've been, you know, um, indoctrinated to believe that's just going to be your life. And at the same time, to get out of it feels like there's no no out in it. It's if, if, you know, this is it, this is it. There's no other bigger projection. But there is. There is, and it takes a lot of courage. It is not warm and fuzzy all the time, and it opens up some doors and some some windows that you never wanted to see open. But at the end of the day, with a lot of work and courage with it, it does transform you. So getting past the stigma is not just the, you know, destination, it's the journey. It's the real journey. And it pays off. To go beyond the show, be sure to connect with us on all social media platforms at No Stigmas. And you can always reach out at nostigmas.org to connect with us and see how we can team up together to champion mental health equity for all. Remember, to break these stigmas, we must be unsilent. We'll see you next time.